Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the 542nd show of ROI, and our guest today is Dr. Keisha Tracy, Professor of English Studies at Fitchburg State University. And we're going to be talking about myth-busting medieval disabilities. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Keisha. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we are too, very much. I'm, I should, in, in the interest of full disclosure, tell you that I am a medievalist by training. So it's really exciting for me to, to have somebody to, to talk about medieval subjects. That's fantastic. I think everybody should be a medievalist by training. Me too. That's that's exactly the way I feel. I'm also a reenactor, so that makes me oh, sort nice. of doubly infected. That's really great because it's awesome to be able to see how these things come to life with reenactment. So it's it's that's awesome. All right. So our first uh, segment of the show is called Farouk Dinarin, and we really just want to give listeners a little bit of background. So can you start us off by? sort of giving us a sense of what was considered a disability in the medieval world. And also, I'm interested why you chose this relatively uh, unusual topic. Absolutely. I'll actually start with the second question first and then move into the to the first one. Um, I, uh, I, I consider myself to have a disability uh, itself, so that is obviously relevant to, to my own personal interest. I also had people in my family with disabilities, but um, I really, this field didn't really come into the, to the fore until I was in graduate school, which um, about 15 years ago at this point, where uh, disability became a, a field in, in, in the study of the Middle Ages, which before that, people were kind of doing it here and there and a little bit, but you really didn't see papers or panels or conferences even on this particular subject. And I really got interested in it at that point. And then um, becoming a teacher, I became especially interested in mental health with my students. And that sort of fed also into what I was interested in in disability studies. So uh, my teaching and research sort of just kept in influencing each other as it went. And I also happened to be a, a part of the, the growing field of, of medieval disability. So it all kind of just fell in my lap and worked out uh, at the same time. Isn't that wonderful um, when that happens? <laughs> It is. It really is. Because, yeah, as you know, it's sometimes hard to find your niche whenever you're a, mm -hmm. an academic. Um, and it was it was nice that it just sort of all all came together and made sense to me. And I could felt I had something to contribute, which which was good. Um, as far as what was a disability in the Middle Ages, my, my short answer is, is the same things that are a disability now were a disability in the Middle Ages. Um, the big difference really is is in terms of terminology, language, and how they're understood. Um, so, you know, we have all of these medical terms for disability. We have categories of disability that break down into other categories. Um, and we love to name things, right? So we've, we've been doing that for the last, you know, several hundred years, uh, especially in mental health, right, where we're, after you go through 
the era of psychoanalysis and everything, you start getting a lot of terminology in the Middle Ages, of course, none of that existed. So um, there were a lot of broad categories for things. So, you know, there were um, mobility issues, which could involve a lot of different issues that, that involve the legs or, or anything along those lines, or the, the term madness um, sort of was an umbrella category for a number of different um, mental health issues. But when you start looking at the actual experiences and you start reading about it and you start analyzing all of it, you can really see that, you know, it's the same type of thing. So, for example, um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was, you know, not a terminology used in the Middle Ages. But if you start examining things like soldiers' um, journals or soldiers' writings after uh, after they've come back from war or um, even like law cases that, that involve soldiers that have come back from war, you can start to see the same type of symptoms and the same type of experiences that are described there that we, ha- that we see today and we call PTSD. Um, so the, the, the short answer is, is that disability was the same, that like the same disabilities have always existed, um, but they were called different things. They were looked at in different ways, um, all of that sort of thing. Okay, so I'm going to start with the what I think are the um, the easier, more clean-cut ones to, to talk about, and I think our dis- my deciders are going to be really interested in the mental health uh, sorts yeah. of possibilities, so we'll save that for, for another question. Um, so just... In, in terms of, I'm thinking of disabilities that are caused as opposed to born. So yeah. an injury as opposed to someone being born without a limb, for, for example. Um, yeah. How does the Middle Ages look at those kinds of things? And we, in, in the past, we've certainly had stigmas associated with some of those kinds of things in, in the modern world. Is that equally true in the medieval one? Yes. I mean, it really is a matter of a family. And, and as you know, the Middle Ages is, is not a monolithic, right? So there's, there's, it's you know, roughly 500 to 1500 CE, uh, not only in Europe, but in other areas of the world as well. And so um, that's a lot of territory, a lot of geography and a lot of different societies and people to deal with. Um, so there's there's no one thing that is true for all for all of these peoples and all of that. It's the same as today. You have people who um, have a stigma against uh, or have have something you know that they they are afraid of or something like that when it comes to people with disabilities. And you have people who are um, perfectly empathetic and perfectly understand that disability is a part of human life. And the same is true in the Middle Ages. You have both going on. Um, so as far as the difference between being born and um, something happening to you later in life, it really does depend on where you are and your circumstances that exist around you. So if, for example, you are born without um, a a lower limb, then um, it depends on your circumstance. Are you in a community that is able and who um, understands how to provide what is necessary and the services necessary for someone in that condition? Or are you in an area that may have some deprivation or may have something else going on that might cause um, some sort of um, adverse response to somebody in that condition? So it really kind of depends a little bit on where you are. It might also depend on your family circumstances. If you're born into a family that has a history of uh, outlawry, for example, there might be uh, something that says, 
you know, you're kind of born that way because your family um, has been, you know, committing sins or has been doing something else, or it's kind of like the response to that. You know, if you're a family that's that's um, born into a family that's very different, then that might be a different response as well. So it really kind of depends on that. As far as having, you know, having a disability later uh, through an accident or something like that, then, um, you know, again, it depends on the circumstances. So if that is because uh, you were working and you had it on the, you know, on the job, per se, um, then it might be perceived as, you know, um, an honor. So, for example, a soldier who loses a limb, you know, has been fighting, right? That There's a big difference between um, uh, different different circumstances when it comes to that sort of thing. It's also important to keep in mind that, at least in the Christian Middle Ages in Christian Europe, there was a sense of original sin, right? Whenever some, like, we're born into original sin, and in a sense, that's almost to the sense, if you look at how it was described and thought, we're all sort of born disabled. Um, and so there's this sense that disability is sort of a part of human life in, to a certain point. Um, and so, and also people were practical, you know, that things happened and, and that is just the way it went. So it really did depend on who you were, where you were and what your circumstances were. All right. Well, as you can see, we have a lot more to talk about. So please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. Davenport, Rock Island, Milan, Coal Valley, Taylor Ridge, Bettendorf, Eldridge, Long Grove, LeClaire, Moline, East Moline, and Silvis. We're right in your neighborhood with local radio for the Quad Cities. KALA Davenport, 88.5 FM. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is our second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Keisha Tracy, Professor of English Studies at Fitchburg State University, and we're talking about myth-busting medieval disabilities. Our history bus for today are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. Rick, why don't you start us off? Okay, I'll do that. Keisha, uh, since I'm a political scientist by trade, unemployed, of course, um, <laughs> was the was the uh, declaring somebody a nutcase or uh, disabled or uh, uh, undesirable used uh, as a political weapon? Oh, absolutely. Um, you definitely see that through throughout history. Um, but, I mean, it was the same is true in the Middle Ages. Um, actually, one example that, that jumps to mind is kind of one that crosses the Middle Ages and the early modern period, uh, Richard III. Um, who, if you've heard about him before, he's the one who has scoliosis, had the, the, the back, the curved back and spine, but he's the one that was found under the car park in England several years ago, which by the way, they're often finding Kings under car parks in England. I don't know why that is true, but, um, he, so he was like, um, whether he was a good or a bad King is kind of, you know, up for grabs. There's a lot of discussion about that, but in his time, he there there isn't any indication that his disability was used against him or was used as a political tool or anything along those lines. But then when the Tudors take over, they start a campaign against, you know, they're, they're trying to legitimize them taking over the throne. 
And um, they start this whole campaign that, that Thomas More is involved in, Shakespeare is then later involved in, um, that starts putting stigma upon the fact that he was a quote-unquote hunchback and that this is somehow equated to his evilness as a, as a ruler and the, the, the reason why the Tudors had to take over the throne. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely used as a political tool. <laughs> okay. Ed? Yes, you mentioned earlier that uh, particularly mental illness was kind of tossed into a large basket. Um, were the attempts at treatment kind of a one-size-fits-all thing as well? enough they weren't uh one of my favorite things to stu- it's one of my uh, my uh emphases right now is a place called gilles belgium uh and gilles belgium was the home area of the saint saint dimphna who was the patron and is the patron saint of those with mental health issues um and so in the middle ages and now she was she was this patron saint and um, Gilles, interestingly enough, became this area where people with mental health issues would flock to to be treated. And we might say, you know, you might think that it was just, you know, to come to, you know, be in the presence of the of the saints relics or, or all of those things. But it was really, if you start looking at it, they had many different types of treatments that they were that they were providing. So they were providing a religious where you were, they, they found these supposed relics of St. Dipna that are now uh, still in the church there. And they, you know, would be in the presence of the relics. Um, they would have all of these kind of religious things. They would have uh, rituals around all of that. But they also had hospitals there where people were treated physically for any of those types of symptoms that existed. And then they had so many people showing up in, in Gilles that they started a shared living program where people would be placed with people in the community and they would help them have, uh, you know, have jobs, have things that they would do for the community. They became fosters to the people who were there. So the social part of the, their treatment was also a part of that. Um, by the way, they still do that from the middle ages to now, they still have a shared living program for people with mental health issues um, in Gilles, Belgium, which is kind of, is just fascinating to me. But um, so it's an example of how there are different types of treatments for it. And there's like herbal treatments that they, that they were also a part of mental health uh, issues. So if you start looking into like the recipes for mental, for, for herbs and, and medicinal herbs, they, they, you can see that they, they treat um, hallucinations, they treat um, headaches, they treat uh, insomnia, all the things that we might associate with a mental health issue. So there's there's a ton of different ways that, that it was approached in the Middle Ages, from religious to social to medical. And then is there some way for you as a scholar um, to measure the success of this variety of treatments? It's difficult. I mean, it is one of the, 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 the main difficulties, but it's, it's very rewarding and, and very uh, useful. So what we do is we, we take, I mean, I'm a literature scholar, so um, quite often I'm looking at, uh, well, any text that's written down, but, you know, fictional text in particular, but um, where we can, we start, we analyze and we can see what the response is. So how people are talking about before and after treatment. Um, how people tell stories about these treatments. Um, they're miraculous in our cases, but a lot of saints' lives, for example, have saints healing mental health issues. Um, and so we have, like, you know, how people behave before, where they might be considered, um, quote-unquote, raving, or they might be considered 
um, harming themselves or har- you know or attempting to harm others, and then afterwards you have a different description about them. Are they are they part of society? Are they are they um, are they able to manage the symptoms and all of these sorts of things as we would call it today? So um, it's definitely a matter of detective work and trying to and, and being able to analyze all of those things. But I kind of find it freeing because we have so many labels today. With, when we're talking about the Middle Ages, we can we can look at it and we can see exactly what people are saying. All right, Keisha, I'm since you talked about sort of that that interface between religion and and the real world, um, I'm going to give you a couple of of specifics and kind of give me a sense of how that played out. So I'm thinking okay. in terms of of physical health, something like leprosy, which was often considered a curse. Uh, from God and whatever, and how we dealt with those sorts of things in the Middle Ages, and then comparing that to something like possession of whatever variety that you want to talk about, where, again, we, we have a spiritual element, and, and yet we're obviously talking about physical symptomology with, with particular patterns and with treatment options available as well. So can you kind of talk about how religion and I don't want to say medicine because it really doesn't exist in in the sense that we think of that word, but how that interface between sort of religion and practicality um, played. Absolutely. Um, So leprosy is actually a really great example, and I can uh, give you a couple of examples that that might answer the question. So in the um, Middle English period, which is the the Chaucerian period, so a little bit before 1400, um, we have you know a lot of different sermons that people gave uh, and, and and priests gave uh, at, at different points for different reasons. And I'm thinking of two particular sermons that are about a hundred years apart. And one of them uh, is exactly as you said. Leprosy is um, a uh, you know is an avatar essentially for sin. Like it is it is the represent in, in this particular one. It is used as the metaphor that there is a uh, a sinful something sinful within this individual that is being manifested in these physical symptoms so right there you have a connection between the physical and the spiritual which is this idea that what is on the outside um, reflects something that is going on on the inside and if it's leprosy then um, you know there's this idea that these two are connected um, and that's that that sermon definitely fits that category it talks about it uses that metaphor a hundred years later, we have another sermon that uses a leper um, as this sort of spiritually divine individual. So we have someone. Um, so a lot of times when they're like saints and things like that, one of the things that we'll talk about is kind of the um, the holiness of suffering, right? Like God gave them all of this suffering to endure, and it's a divine thing. Um, and they endured it, and they then you know ascended up into heaven. Um, with, with this particular sermon, leprosy is used very much like that, where the, the physical suffering is a part of a holy uh, endeavor of life, a holy part of life that you were given this much suffering to endure. And then in this particular one, and not to be gross about it, but the, the, it goes into a thing where this priest meets this leper, and um, he's, you know, he's treating him very well, and this leper actually asks him to, to lick the snot out of his nose. Um, which he does, and the, a, a jewel falls out of his of his nose, and then the leper ascends into heaven. 
<laughs> hmm. it was, yes, it's a very interesting hmm. sermon. I, you know, I, I think it was it must have been a good day at church when this sermon was was uh, was given. Um, but you can see the metaphor there, which is this idea that this is a holy vessel, right? And that this, the priest, by recognizing that this is a holy vessel, a human being created by God to suffer, um, who is treating him well, who, who you know, performs this act of humility for him and all of these sorts of things, um, then is rewarded, the jewel is metaphoric, and then, and then this, you know, as, that the leper himself is, is ascending to heaven, right? It's not a, he's not punished in hell uh, as a result of his leprosy. So I think those two examples kind of show you those, those connections between the physical reality of living with leprosy. Uh, they also were very aware, by the way, of the practicalities of it. They were able to observe that, you know, when things were contagious and when they weren't, um, and they may not have had, you know, micro, the, the, the micro ability to be able to figure out why, but they were, be able, they were able to observe through, you know, what we would call the scientific process, you know, when something was, was um, contagious. And so they, you know, they would isolate people. Um, and sometimes that was isolation for their own good. And sometimes that was exile, you know, depending on the kind of circumstances that you're talking about. Okay. All right. Rick. Yeah, Keisha, the uh, curious, in the general population when when uh, the let's say the normal people are are confronted with with uh, people with disabilities generally how did the the general population uh, deal with this uh, let's call it aberrant behavior or unique mm-hmm. behavior it's so hard to say because it's so different from from place to place, even town to town, even circumstance to circumstance. So, I mean, if you're talking about a time period that is under stress, let's say that a place is under famine or um, there's a plague or, or something along those lines, um, people are more likely to blame other people, right? Like, I mean, that's a fairly sure. common thing throughout history. You know, I mean, we, we did it today. We did it during COVID, right? Um, the same, the same idea. Um, and so you have circumstances where, say, lepers might be blamed for a circumstance that happened. But the same is also true of Jewish people or of, you know, any any group that is sort of um, isolated or or quote unquote different than the um, than the majority. Then then what you have there is, you know, they, they're looking for somebody to blame. And so there's that circumstance. Um, you also have people like today who are simply just afraid of those of circumstances, especially disability in particular, is one of those that we all know on a on a on a basic level we could become disabled at any moment. Like anything could happen to us that would cause a disability, right? Sure. Um, and sure. so I, there's a fear, right? There's a fear in I think kind of in the human brain in general that you know this could be me, right? Um, and so there's always kind of that, how do, how are you as a human being? How do you deal with it? Do you deal with it with empathy and do you deal with it with, um, the, you know, the ability to, to reach across and be able to help another person? Or do you deal with that with fear and do you deal with that with closing off? Um, and you know, there's different, uh, we have so many circumstances today where that's the case. I actually, I tell my students about this horrific, I don't know if you remember this a few years ago. It was a social media um, meme or, or uh, social media thing where uh, 
people were taking pic or showing pictures of, of physically and obviously disabled people to their children and then telling them they were going to be their teachers and then filming their reactions, um, which is horrific. It's an absolutely horrific uh, reaction to that kind of thing. And it's teaching generations also about that kind of fear and that kind of stigma that, that we're perpetuating. Same thing happened in the Middle Ages, but also you have places like Gilles who behaved very differently, right? And it was a very different circumstance. It was yeah. it was perfectly normal for people with mental health issues to be in the community and helping and, and being a part of families and doing all of that sort of thing. So um, we have we have all kinds of different stories uh, and all kinds of different evidence of how people were treated. Keisha, um, since we are talking about myth busting, um, if there was one myth about people uh, about the medieval uh, attitude toward or dealing with um, disabilities what would that myth be that you would want to blow up here oh my gosh I have several so um, we've hit on a couple already so I won't I won't really mention those um, but I think that um, this idea that people with disabilities were always viewed and neg- viewed and treated negatively in the Middle Ages, and that they were always one group or another—that people were people with disabilities were always, you know, part of the poor, or they were never allowed in positions of power, or anything along those lines. Um, I think there's a sense that when we, when I, and when I ask that question a lot at presentations and, and of my students. Uh, you know, what do you what do you think you know about people with disabilities in the Middle Ages? Usually, the first answer is they were shunned, they were exiled, they were treated poorly, um, all of these sorts of things, and it's just not true. I mean, we have examples of people in power who were um, who were um, uh, disabled on many you know different levels. So, for example, Alfred the Great had Crohn's disease, or what we think was Crohn's disease. Um, and suffered quite a lot with it, but I don't think anybody would say he was, you know, you know, not allowed to be in power as a result of it. Um, he was Alex, you know, he was uh, uh, Alfred the Great. So I mean, it, we have that kind of situation. We have um, Baldwin the Fourth, who was a leper king, um, who really his, I mean, he was he was a leper, and the only concern that people had about his rule was that he wasn't able to have an heir. Um, but other than that, it seems like he was content, you know, considered to be uh, a perfectly able king. Uh, king Richard III is another example of that sort of thing. So we we have all kinds of examples of, of people with disabilities and power. We have them in all walks of life. They are just everywhere. They're not just poor or beggars or, or anything along those lines. Um, we have them in, in all walks of life in the Middle Ages. And so I, I, that is one thing that I would really like to, you know, I would like to myth bust that one. Okay. Um, it is our custom on the show to give our guests the last word. So, Keisha, why do you think knowing about medieval disabilities and how they were uh, dealt with in the Middle Ages is relevant in today's world? I think it's because um, disability is a universal human experience. It's across all time periods, all geographies. Um, we haven't solved, quote-unquote, the problem of stigma against people with disabilities or different types of disabilities today. And I think if we study the Middle Ages before all the, the terminology, before all the labels, before all of these sorts of things, we get a real sense of how human beings react and manage disability, but also how human beings react and manage being around people with disabilities or recognizing the disability as a part of the community. And I think, um, you know, even 
at this time before, you know, we had some of this, you know, scientific knowledge about why certain disabilities happen or what's going on, that we still have people who are human beings who care about others, who take care of others. And we still have, you know, human beings that react in, in, in more negative ways. And I think it's important to, to recognize that and to study that to make us better human beings today, to figure out ways that we can be better as a community, uh, better as, as societies uh, in, you know, welcoming every every person into this sort of um, every person, no matter what they're bringing to the table. I, I think I would echo that, too, just, you know, putting out my own two cents worth um disabilities are are part of the human experience and in human life and we have a tendency always to think of folks in the past as being somehow less less good like us you know they're they're not as enlightened as we are and and they they you know they don't know as much and and so forth and so on and so there's this sort of inherent superiority that we feel for folks in the past when reality is when you look they function exactly like we do sometimes better than we do as a society um and i think it's important to keep reminding people that 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 people have been people throughout time yes and we can and we need to continually try to be better and not lay back on this idea that we've progressed this far why do we need to do any more you bet when we come back we're going to wrap things up so please stay tuned this is roi on kala st ambrose university 106.1 fm you're listening to relevant or irrelevant this series is produced at st ambrose university's kala radio and has been honored by the midwest broadcast journalists association and the iowa broadcast news association for excellence in public affairs journalism you can hear this edition of roi and many previous programs in this series by visiting spotify google podcasts soundcloud plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 542nd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme. It was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zappital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Keisha Tracy, professor of English studies at Fitchburg State University. We've been talking about myth-busting medieval disabilities. Our history bus for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pulinala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.